back and forth in this thing because I don't like to sit down. I like to wander around. Brother John, you got Brother John and me corralled here so we don't get to move around as much. Maybe we can focus on the scriptures. In uh, Acts chapter 18, we've had two great lessons so far on the first journey, the second journey. And as the first, excuse me, the second one had the purpose, one of the purposes of exhorting the new Christians, so does the third journey have the same uh, purpose anyway. It's multi-purpose. The gospel is being taken out, but there are new Christians by the time we come to uh, Acts chapter 18. Of course, we find them in Acts chapter 2. And we notice that the Lord does not just leave them alone, does he? By the way, this is a participatory class. If you have something you'd like to, to ask or you'd like to contribute, just raise your hand and I'll acknowledge you and let you talk. I'm not sure I can talk for a whole hour, so you're going to have to help me. This sounds funny from a preacher to say that, doesn't it? So, come to uh, Acts chapter 18 and verse 23. Very briefly, just after he had spent some time there, he departed, went over all the country of Galatia and Phrygia and Orda, strengthening all the disciples. Then the next little section is about Apollos and Aquila and Priscilla. So what we're going to be doing as we get through this this evening, I'm not going to take it uh, as it's set up in the book of Acts. And I'll tell you why in just a little bit. But again, now we're looking here at, uh, at the map. You see what he's going to be covering on this time period. We find that the uh, focus was on strengthening the disciples. There, I'm pointing it to the right place. Thank you, Brother Gene, for your help. The duration of this was suspected to be about three to four years. You look in Acts 20 and verse 31, and Paul says he had been in, in Ephesus for three years. The main concentration of this journey seems to be in Ephesus, as opposed to um, some of the other places where they had already gone before. So three to four years, the time, if we were to put a date on it, probably somewhere in the 50s of the first century. The uh, estimated distance traveled by Paul and those who were traveling with him would be about uh, almost 1,200 miles by sea and about 1,300 miles by, by land. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. I remember after one preacher preached for about an hour and a half, somebody brought him a bottle of water and he said, well, how about that? And the other person said, yeah, it's the first time I've ever seen a windmill run by water. So I'll try not to do that to you. Also during this time, as we would read, we would find that Paul had written at least one uh, inspired letter, and that would be the letter of 1 Corinthians. He references the Ephesians in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 8. Uh, perhaps he also wrote 2 Corinthians, Romans, and Galatians during this time as well. We notice from the map, you can see where it started and where it ended. It started in Antioch of Syria and then ended in Jerusalem. Now, here's what I want to say about the record we're going to talk about tonight. Not, and all the journeys are the same way. But you remember Luke is the writer of the book of Acts. He's the writer, of course, of the gospel according to Luke. And as Luke begins, he is addressing a brother named Theophilus. And he mentions to him that he was going to set in order the things that he had seen or that he had been a part of. So Luke not only was writing by inspiration, Luke was a well-organized person. So with that being said, one of the things I'd like you to notice, and we could have seen this in the other two journeys as well, is I want you to notice the details of chapter 18 through chapter 21, at least for verse 16 of chapter 21. 
For instance, the details. There are 18 Christians named. They're separated, this section is separated into 101 verses. Of those 101 verses, there are 18 Christians named. There are others who are referenced, such as the daughters of, of uh, Philip. Also, there are 23 locations named. Now, the question is this, and again, you're welcome to participate in this if you like. The question is this, why would they give so much detail? If you go back again, back to Luke, uh, in Luke chapter 2, chapter 3, uh, he goes into quite a bit of detail about who was in what political position during the time that, that Jesus uh, was born. But why would he go into so much detail here in the book of Acts, do you suppose? Yes. Okay, quite possibly. Because he wanted them to go back. He knew he would be going back sometimes, but... Uh, you know, Paul was going to be somewhat limited later on, wasn't he, as to where he could go? So possibly so. That's good. Anybody else? Why would you give so much detail? Do you think that uh, as the centuries have passed, maybe even in the first century then, but even now, so many centuries removed from the first century, do you think anybody has ever questioned the accuracy of the Bible? So what's one of the ways that you can prove the accuracy of something? by detail, okay? So if we look at that regarding that particular matter, again, it shows the accuracy of God's word. There was a, a book written in 1895 by a man named William Ramsey. And William Ramsey was a, a renowned archeologist from Scotland. He set out to uh, what we call, or what they called then Asia Minor to uh, try to disprove the accuracy of the scriptures, specifically the book of Acts. He believed that the book of Acts had some mistakes in it as far as where towns were. And so he set out to, uh, to prove that. And what happened along the way is he saw that he was wrong and that the Bible was right. So that's a good example. By the way, that, that book is available for free online. It's, it's pretty heavy read, but it's pretty good stuff too. So that's called, um, that called St. Paul the Traveler and Roman Citizen. Here's another thought regarding the details, and this is my thought, this isn't in the, in the scripture. I'm just, again, trying to think about why are they going to detail. You know, Paul's out there and he's teaching the gospel and he's meeting new, new uh, Christians all along the way, new people all along the way. What's the rest of the church doing during this time? What's been happening? Go back to Acts chapter eight, and remember Paul was the one who kind of got this started in Acts chapter eight when the church uh, was in Jerusalem. And then the persecution that Paul was behind when he was known as Saul and was still in Judaism ran, basically ran most of the Christians out of Jerusalem. The, the apostles stayed, but the others left. According to Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, when the Christians who were persecuted in Jerusalem left Jerusalem, where did they go? Did they go all over the place? All right, here's a little easier one for you. When they went all over the place, what did they do while they were going? They were spreading the word of God, okay? That's what Acts 8 and verse 4 says, that they went everywhere preaching the word. So I think another aspect of showing the details would be to show that there were others who were engaging in uh, spreading the gospel like Paul was, of course, like Peter was as well. Okay, so we have a lot of material to cover there. And as time goes fast, I'm supposed to be done by 8 o'clock, is that right?
tomorrow night. Okay, great. Eight o'clock tomorrow night, I'll be finished. But let's talk now. Briefly, what we're going to do is just go over some of the highlights of the journey itself. And I want to come back because there's one particular chapter I want us to spend most of our time on, and I'll tell you the reason when we get there. But the highlights of the journey in uh, chapter 19, verses 1 through 7, we have 12 men who were immersed in the name of the Lord Jesus in the city of Ephesus. Again, this is just a highlight, not going into detail. In chapter 19, verses 8 through 10, the gospel was preached in Ephesus. By the way, just on a side note, there's a really sad statement there in Acts chapter 19 and verse 9. As Paul had just taught these 12 men and had immersed them into Christ, he went out teaching more of the gospel. But in Acts 19, verse 9, I think this is incredibly sad when it says, Many were hardened and did not believe, but instead spoke evil of that way before the multitude. You know, we, we think sometimes that, uh, well, if we had lived in the first century when uh, there, was, there were faithful Christians who were performing miracles, apostles who were laying hands on people, giving the ability to perform miracles, and we think to ourselves, well, that would have been so much easier to be a Christian then. That would have been so much easier to teach people then. But you know what? They didn't listen then either, did they? Some refused to listen, and we know some refused to listen to Jesus as well. Another highlight of this journey is those special miracles. Maybe your version in, in Acts 19 and verse uh, uh, 11 might say extraordinary. This was Paul who had the, uh, the handkerchiefs or the aprons, as they're called in some versions, and people were, were just taking those off of him, seeking the, the power of Christ. Kind of reminds me of Acts chapter five. Remember what happened with Peter? What was happening with Peter? They weren't taking handkerchiefs off him. What were they doing? The shadow was going by and they just wanted to get in his shadow, right? So that at least the shadow could be in their way and somehow they could benefit from that. All right, chapter 19, verses 13 through 17, we read about those fake healers, not faith healers, the fake healers, the seven sons of Siva, who thought that the name of Jesus was like a magic word, I suppose. And so they went around trying to, uh, to uh, 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 perform exorcisms in the name of Jesus. And of course the uh, demon said, we know who Jesus is, we know who Paul is, but who are you? And he ran them out. All right, also in here, in this third journey, we have many who turned from the world to the Lord. That's in chapter 19, verses 18 through 20. Chapter 19, verses 21 through 24, we have an uproar in Ephesus. One of the most unusual statements from someone who was intent on following their God instead of the God of the universe, the one true God. One of the most unusual statements is in Acts 19 and verse 26, where Demetrius, who started the problem, he was a man who was making a lot of money making idols of Diana. But he said that these... Uh, People like Paul are going around and they're saying, this is at the end of verse 26 of Acts 19, they're going around saying that they are not gods that are made with hands. So Demetrius was admitting that his God was made with hands. Don't you find that rather unusual that someone would think to worship something that they made? If you go back to Jeremiah 10, if we have time to do this this evening, we'll go back and look at this. We look in Jeremiah 10, Isaiah chapter 44, 
you find that in both those cases, people were, were cutting down trees and they were shaping the thing to look like an idol in Isaiah's account in Isaiah 44. Uh, the person who cut down the tree would take part of it and he would burn it uh, for heat. He'd take another part, he'd burn it and roast his food on there. Then he'd look at the third part of it and think, wow, I got food off this thing. It kept me warm. This must be God. And so with the third part of the tree that he cut down, he proceeds to make an idol. So they still had that issue in the first century. Another highlight, Eutychus, risen from the dead when they were there in Troas in chapter 20. Chapter 20, 17 through 38 is where Paul meets with the elders of the Ephesian church in the city of uh, Miletus. And let's see, chapter 21 verses 1 through 16 finishes it up where Paul was being warned not to go to Jerusalem because there were some things that were going to happen to him that they were, uh, his brethren did not want to see happen. Okay, So we can go through all that, but what I want to do is have you turn to Acts chapter 20. This is where I want to focus most of our time this evening. This is what I call the heart of the journey. Again, this is my assessment of it after reading these chapters. Ephesus is the prime point, primary point of the journey. He spends most of his time there. And I think what we're going to find as we look here in Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 35, we're going to find this is pretty much a foundation of who Paul is and what else he does. So we're going to take a look at that. But think about this, if you will. This is uh, essentially Paul's face-to-face uh, -face final words with the church in Ephesus. He says in chapter 20 and verse 25 that uh, you will see my face no more. So this is what we might call Paul's final words to the elders at Ephesus. And when you think about that, it made me think of some of the uh, famous final words that people have. Of course, I have a lot of these we could give, but I just thought of two of them that, that uh, could be fairly well known. This one by Leonardo da Vinci, da Vinci. Supposedly one of the last things he said before he died was, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Doesn't that sound kind of strange? But at the end of his life, that's how he assessed his life, and he wanted to say something before he died, and that's what he's remembered for his final words. And then, of course, there's Nathan Hale. I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. So when somebody says their final words or what they anticipate to be their final words, either in life or in this particular case, face to face with the elders in Ephesus, uh, they're going to be pretty deep. And again, Paul is speaking and writing by inspiration. Of course, Luke's writing it, but Paul's speaking by inspiration. So as we look at these words of Paul, in Acts chapter 20, I want to notice three things that he covers. He talks about his personal conduct and example. He also gives a warning, and he also gives a lot of encouragement. Now, here's the reason he's having to get, you know what? I bring an outline up with me. I don't know why I do that, Brother Jane. I, I don't stay with it, so I've got to keep up with where I'm going here. There we go. Okay. All right, so in Acts chapter 20, we go down to verse 17, beginning. And we find that Paul is called for the elders of Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, to come down and meet with him. He doesn't want to go back to Ephesus. He's already been there for uh, a little bit of time. And he wants to make sure he's in Jerusalem by the time of Pentecost. So he doesn't want to be delayed by that. So he asks the elders to come down 
and meet him in Miletus. Okay, about 35 miles from Ephesus, called with those things. So let's look at what Paul has to say to these good brothers. This is beginning in verse 18, and I'm reading from the King James Version. He says, when they were come to him, he said unto them, you know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I've been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind, with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying and weight of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Spirit witnesses in every city, saying the bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy in the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that ye all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God shall see my face no more. Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yea, you yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. I have showed you all things, how that so laboring you ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now about uh, two months ago, when we were deciding which uh, Bible classes to have, uh, I volunteered to teach a class on Sunday morning downstairs on the life of Paul. And I had no idea I would be speaking on this during VBS, so it kind of dovetails nicely. But here are some things we're going to learn about Paul. And Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, he said, Be followers of me, even as I am of Christ. And why would we take the time to learn about Paul? Paul was just a man, right? Paul was a sinful individual, was he not? He called himself the chief of sinners in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15. So why do we spend our time looking at Paul? Well, because he did set a godly example for us to see. And we can follow him as he followed Christ. So let's look at what Paul says about himself or what we can learn about Paul in his service to God. First of all, in verse 19, verse 18 rather, he says, you know from the first day that I came into Asia after what manner I've been with you at all seasons. Basically the word that I put there to sum up Paul's, what he's saying about himself at that point is, is I'm, I've been consistent. We use the Letters for what you see is what you get. Paul says, I've been consistent from the very first time that I came to be with you. Now, what is the charge that is often made against Christians? You're a bunch of what? But you've heard that too? Okay. You're a bunch of hypocrites. That is a term that's often thrown around by individuals. Okay. Paul wanted people to know that he had been consistent in his life from the very time that he got there to be with them. 
But the Bible says in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 5 that we are to have a sincere faith. Or the King James says unfeigned. The uh, Greek word that's translated that is the word starts with the letter A, A, which means not, and the rest of the term is uh, hypocritas. What's that sound like? Hypocrisy, hypocrite, okay. So he exhorts us that our faith should be sincere, not hypocritical. And again, we know that's what people look for. As we go through here, we're going to see, get into some times that Paul had some difficulties with brethren over the charges, and some of that included him being insincere and hypocritical. Let's see, I've got first, uh, yeah, first Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's take a look at that real quick. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. In first Thessalonians chapter 2, 3 through 5, Paul says, Our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God which tries our hearts. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. So again, we tie that into what we saw in Acts chapter 20, where Paul is consistent in his life. Okay, let's look at another trait of Paul here. In chapter 20 and verse 19, we see several things about him there. Number one, that he was a servant of the Lord. What did Jesus say in Matthew 20 about being a servant? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Servants are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, okay. Why is that? How can it be that one who serves is the greatest in the spiritual kingdom? Who was the one who came and gave his life as a servant for us? Okay, and that's exactly what he talks about in Matthew 20, isn't it? that he's your example, he's the one who came to serve you. In the world, it's not that way, is it? In the world of kingdoms, it's those who usually with the, the most amount of money, the most amount of political influence. But in the kingdom of God, it's about being a servant. So Paul talked about the fact that he'd been serving the Lord. Furthermore, back to chapter 20, in verse uh, 19, he talks about how he'd been serving God with humility. In James chapter 4 and verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Serving God with humility as opposed to uh, Luke 18 with that uh, Pharisee who went up to pray and basically said to God, what did he say to God? Aren't you lucky to have me? Something to that effect. Seems like it anyway. All right, then still in verse 19, it says that uh, I have served the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears. What did Paul have to cry about? Why would he be tearful? Was, was, was everybody obeying the gospel? No, they weren't. Was every Christian remaining faithful? No, they weren't. You're going to come later on in his life as he writes 2 Timothy. And he's going to talk about some brethren. He's going to talk about one named Demas. And Demas has done what? He's forsaken me having loved this present world. Paul talked in Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 19 about those who were going about teaching error, teaching false doctrine, and about how he wept over them. He did the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He talked about the concern, the care he had for the Lord's church. Paul was heavily burdened by 
those who would not obey, but also those who had obeyed and gone away from the faith. So when he talks about the tears, and as I look around and I see men who are elders or have been elders, uh, I know you've shed more than a few of those yourself, as well as I'm sure many of us have over lost souls. Let's look back in verse 19 again. Serve the Lord with humility, with many tears, and temptations which befell me by the lying and weight of the Jews. Okay, now there's a phrase that we see about two or three more times in the scriptures. Lying in wait. When you think of lying in wait, you think of maybe somebody in a dark alley waiting for uh, someone to come out there so they can jump out and harm them, right? The, another word, maybe your version has the word plot. They plotted against him. Have you ever thought about the irony of this? When, when Paul was known as Saul and was one of the, the uh, leading Jewish individuals of his day, what was he doing, according to the scriptures, mostly? He was hunting down Christians, right? And he wasn't just going next door. He wasn't just going down the street. Where was he going to find Christians? He could turn in. He's going all over, right? He, co he covered a lot of ground as a Jew who was trying to turn in Christians and stop the church. You ever find it ironic that when he obeyed the gospel, that, that imme immediately those same Jews who had been in fellowship with him were now chasing after him from country to country, from, from shore to shore. The Lord had told Ananias in Acts chapter nine, Ananias was a little hesitant to go to Saul and to, preach him, to teach him the gospel and to baptize him into Christ. But the Lord said to Ananias, he said, I will show him all the things that he will suffer for me. So the things, the persecutions that Saul engaged in, he himself felt those directed toward him when he became a New Testament Christian. The temptations from those Jews who were lying in wait. Uh, what's the, in Acts chapter nine, after he obeyed the gospel, he started preaching Jesus immediately. What did some of the Jewish people do to Paul? What did they want to do to Paul? They want to shake his hand and have him over for supper. When he first became a Christian, what did some of his former cohorts or brothers and sisters in Judaism, what did they want to do? They wanted to kill him, right? So what did they have to do in Damascus? The Christians had to let him down the wall in a basket. We've got another case of that word lying in wait in Acts chapter 23, 12 through 23. There we read about how there were some who had basically taken an oath that they would not eat or drink anything until they killed Paul. And Paul's nephew heard of that and went to one of the leaders, the political leaders, told them about it, and so they were able to get Paul out of there. But lying in wait, can you imagine everywhere you go, people chasing you down, trying to disrupt your preaching of the gospel? And then when they're not satisfied with that, trying to kill you. I think we talked about this last night, or Gene, you might have talked about it the other, on Monday night. But doesn't it seem kind of an extreme thing to just want to kill somebody because they teach something different religiously than you do? But we're not surprised when we see the great concern that people had over somebody else getting a foothold. What was one of the issues that the Jewish leadership had with Jesus when he was here in the flesh? The king, okay. And they were concerned that they were gonna lose their power to this king. In fact, 
Herod didn't like it right at the first when those wise men came and said, where's the one who's born king of the Jews? Because that's what he was known as. So he didn't like that very much. But as you read through the gospel accounts, you find the people just being scared of losing their political power, losing their place there. People were following Jesus. Well, it's the same thing happening here when we come to, back to uh, chapter 19, if we have time to get into that, in the city of Ephesus. Demetrius wants a, a stop put to Paul and the Christians simply because he's teaching that their God is not a, really a God and people aren't buying their idols anymore. So it's political, it's financial, it has something like that to do with it. So lying in wait, verse 20. Paul said, I kept back nothing that was profitable to you. He's not talking about money, is he? All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is, what is it? Profitable for doctrine. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17. Paul would not withhold anything that was profitable. Galatians 1 and verse 10, he said, if I were the servant of men, I could not be the servant of Christ. He said the same in second, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Paul wanted to make sure that what he taught them was valuable to the soul. Now sometimes the things that we're taught, we don't like very much, right? And sometimes as a preacher and teacher, as an elder, sometimes the things that we have to say to folks is not easy to say. But we say it anyway because it's God's truth. We'll see Paul commenting on that a little bit further on here too. Back to verse 20. He said, I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but look at this phrase. He says, I have showed you. So that's back to that hypocrite thing we were talking about earlier. Paul was insistent on teaching God's truth, but he was also insistent on living God's truth. I taught you and I showed you. How long, how long will you get somebody to follow if you do something totally different than what you teach? It's not gonna last for long, is it? You can't legitimately say that, yes, I'm following Christ if my life is inconsistent with what I teach if I'm teaching his truth. So Paul says, not only have I taught you, but I showed you, and then teaching again at the end of verse 20. He says, I've taught you publicly, and I've taught you privately. It's interesting to me that uh, this happens more than once in here, but when we go back to Acts 19 and read about Paul uh, uh, and his interaction with those 12 men he, he immersed, or who were immersed after he taught them, it says he found these men going through the upper coasts, the upper part of Ephesus. Now, how did he find them? Except for the fact that he was looking for them. He had his eyes open, looking for opportunity to teach the gospel to someone. Paul exhorted individuals to do that as Christians, and Paul did it himself. So he taught privately, he taught publicly, and he showed them how to do these things. Let's go to verse 21. He's saying that he testified both to the Jews and also to the Greeks. He took to heart what Jesus had said, that the gospel is for all. Mark 16 and verse 15, as you're going out into the world, take the gospel to all creation. Again, you wanna see some irony? We know how Paul, Saul, felt about Christians. We know how Judaism in general in that day felt about the Gentiles. You know, later on, Paul would call himself the apostle to the Gentiles. In fact, Acts 13, which we talked about the other night, 
which is practically a parallel to Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 13, we find Paul preaching the gospel. And we find that there is a mixture of Jew and Greek in his audience. The Jews who are hearing it, many of them, they don't want to hear anymore. Paul said, so be it. I'm going to turn to the Gentiles now. Not that he would neglect teaching a Jew if he had an opportunity, but he was going to focus on teaching the Gentiles, and they were very happy about that. But again, another irony, a man who had been so strong in the, in the Jewish, uh, not only in the faith, but politically positioned as well, uh, would be the one who would be primarily going to the Gentiles. The gospel is for all. What's it? Back to verse uh, 21. Testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, now that's specific. Has everybody seen It's a Wonderful Life? More than once. Okay. In the, in the movie It's a Wonderful Life, uh, George is, is sitting in a bar because he's just found out he lost a lot of money. He's very upset and he's praying to God and he says, dear God, if there is a God. And you think, well, that doesn't seem quite, uh, quite to cover because Hebrews 11 verse 6 says that we must believe that God is. But the focus of this verse 21 of, Matthew, of Acts chapter 20 is repentance unto or toward God. Repenting of the things that have violated his will. And then more specifically, faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you noticed when you watch some sporting events, after the game, the winner may be giving credit to mom, dad, coach, whatever, and somebody will say, God, I'd like to thank God for this privilege of being able to play this sport. Everybody's relatively cool with that. But then somebody says, I'm thankful to Jesus Christ. And now we get more specific. And all of a sudden, that person is raked over the cold because he said Jesus Christ. See, it is that specific. It's not just believe in any being superior to yourself. It's specific. It's faith toward Jesus Christ and repentance toward the one true God. Let's go to verses 22 and 23. Verses 22 and 23, Paul says, Behold, I go bound in the Spirit into Jerusalem. And the word bound means constrained or, or pressed or essentially obligated. And I would suggest to you that he has a mission that he's on, and he's going to complete that mission. He's going to get to Jerusalem. You see that, as he said back in chapter 20, verse 16. He wasn't going to Ephesus because he had to make sure he got to Jerusalem. So he had a focus. He, had a, he was a purposed individual. And in this purpose, he was bound in the spirit. He was bound and determined to go on to Jerusalem to be with them there. But look what he says. I go to, in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there. Can you imagine Abraham go all the way back to Genesis chapter 11, where he's told to leave his country? And he's not told exactly where he's supposed to go. He's just supposed to leave. Well, here's Paul. He's going to Jerusalem. He has no clue what's going to happen. But, bringing verse 23 in, he does know that the Holy Spirit says, in every city there are bonds and afflictions that, that are waiting for me. So how anxious would we be to go into a situation 
that we knew was going to be troublesome for us. You know, back to Acts 19 in verse uh, 30. This is after the city of Ephesus is now worked up themselves into a little bit of a lather over the Christians and what they were teaching. And there was quite a bit of, of uh, mob stuff going on in the city of Ephesus at that time. Verse 30 says that Paul tried to go in amongst them. And of course, he's persuaded by his brethren not to, but think about the, again, think about the character of this man we're talking about. He just wants to teach the gospel. And he knows as he's going toward Jerusalem that uh, I don't know what's going to happen. I just know there's going to be some bad things happen to me physically. That's what he talks about in that verse. Let's see, let's move on. Verse 24. He says, none of these things move me. In other words, the fact, not the probability, but the fact that he is going to face persecution. And we know how he was treated when he got to Jerusalem. The fact that he knows that, and he says, that doesn't move me. I don't know what your version says, but the word move means just what it, what it means. I'm not going to be budged off my position. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to teach the gospel. I'm not going to change. You know, it makes you think I made reference up there to Ephesians 6, 13, and 14. That's the uh, listing of the, the uh, spiritual garb that God has given to us as Christians. And including in that is those pieces of, of armor or protection that we have or strength that we have to help our feet stand firm, to not be moved. That's what Paul's portraying here in this thought. None of these things move me. I, you know, whatever threats are being made against me, whatever news is going to be presented to me about what's going to happen to me, I'm going anyway. And we'll see this. We'll come to chapter 21 here in just a little bit and talk about that some more. Back to 24. None of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself. In other words, my life is not my priority. Saving my physical life is not my priority. Saving spiritual lives is my priority. None of these things move me, neither count on my life dear myself, so that I might finish my course with joy. And again, there's a great passage. The book of Philippians is known for its uh, frequent use of the words joy or rejoice, written by Paul, of course. So now Paul is... is See, this is written probably in the 50s, and he supposedly died probably somewhere in the 60s or so, I think, maybe a little bit later than that. So he's still got some years ahead of him. And he's still got the persecution awaiting him and all these things that are, he's going to be facing. He's not content just to, uh, to play, out the, play out the rest of the ball game, as it were. He said, I'm going to finish my course. Remember he said that, 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8. I finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord shall give me at that day. But back here to Acts chapter 20 and verse 24. He's not satisfied just to get to the end of life. He says along the way, I'm going to finish my course with joy. 
So he's going to, in spite of all the things that are happening to him, he's going to have a life full of joy. Verse 24 again, in the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. That's what his focus is. Verse 25 down now through verse 30. He said, as we talked earlier about verse 25, he told him he would see them no more. But isn't this kind of a bold statement in verse 26? Wherefore I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. That's a pretty large statement. I don't know that I could make that statement. The reason he could make that statement is in the next verse, verse 27. He says, I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Again, Galatians 1, 8 through 10. Uh, second Thess- excuse me, 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 5 and following. If I should be a man pleaser, I would not be pleasing God. Paul's first and foremost focus was to do the will of God. Did people like it? No, they didn't always like it. Did people turn on him? Yes, people turned on him. But he could honestly say, I've taught you the truth. Remember back in um, Ezekiel 3 and also chapter 33, that Ezekiel talks about the, the guard on the watchtower. The guard on the watchtower. He's out there, he's on the edge of the city, he's in the, the, on the, the wall watching for the enemy to come. And Ezekiel says, if you see harm coming or see the enemy coming toward the city and you as the watchman say something, everybody in town, warn everybody in town about the enemy coming. If you do that and they respond to your message and they prepare themselves, then all will be well with them, with your city. If you as the watchman on the watchtower are standing there and you see the enemy coming toward the city and you turn and you warn everybody in the city about it and they don't listen to you, at least you've done what you're supposed to do. Ezekiel 33 and Ezekiel chapter 3. But, he said, if you're the guard on the watchtower and you see the enemy coming toward the city and you don't say anything, then you're going to be held accountable for your inaction. So we think about Paul when we think of that. I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God, whether you obey or not. It's your choice, and it's still the same today. We can't make anybody obey the gospel. But we can present it to them in love, Ephesians 4 and verse 15. And when we do that, we're giving them the opportunity to make that choice, to become a Christian. Verse 31. He said, therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. The warning and the watch. Just before that, he had told these elders, he had exhorted them in verse 28 to take heed to themselves and to the flock. That's a a good pattern still for men who are elders today. Take heed to yourself so that you can properly lead the flock according to God's will. But here's a sad statement in verse 29. He said, I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Paul gave a warning. He wasn't going to be there forever. And again, as we said earlier, this is probably the last time he saw these brothers face to face. 
And he's giving them a warning that they need to be aware and they need to be watchful because of the evil intent that some would have. Verse 32, there's a lot in verse 32. Now, brethren, I, com I commend you to God. Paul is leaving. Of course, he's always trusted God's way. I say always, but he had been trusting God's way, following the way of Christ. But he's not going to be with these brothers anymore, physically. So to say, I commend you to God, it's basically what he's saying is, I'm giving your care and keeping over to the Father. Again, that doesn't mean that he did not acknowledge the uh, presence of the Father during the time he was with those folks in Ephesus. But he's not going to be there anymore with them physically. So he's giving their care to God. I commend you to God. And you think about that. We've, have, we've all had that feeling if we have children, right? The day comes when they up and leave the house, go off to college on their own, go out to a job on their own, get married, whatever. But they leave our home. And we're not there to keep a watchful eye over them like we were when they were younger. So we say, we commit you to God, we commend you to God. That we're still going to be the influence that we want to be and need to be as far as Christian influence goes. But to realize that now, basically, you're, you're going to have to make it out there, but we're going to keep praying to God to watch over you. We're committing your care to the Father. Back to verse uh, 32. I commend you to God, to the word of his grace. This would be a, a long study to talk about grace. But I do want to bring this up because we love to think about the grace of God. But I do want to bring this up because he talks about the word of his grace. Have you ever thought about the Bible being a product of God's grace? The word of his grace. In what ways can we say the Bible is a product of the grace of God? Well, how would we know anything? How would we know about eternity? How would we know about God? How would we know uh, his will without the word of God? The Bible is a product of the grace of God that he has given to us. I commend you to God, to the word of his grace. Look what the word of his grace is able to do. It is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. Why do you read your Bible? You don't have to answer that out loud. But just think about why, why do you read your Bible? Paul said the word of his grace can build you up. You know, I know there's some folks who are going through some particularly difficult times in their lives right now. Maybe they've been Christians for, for years and years. Whether you realize it or not, all those days and times that you spent throughout your younger years reading the Word of God, heeding the Word of God, all those hours that you spent have been building a spiritual muscle within, within you that help you endure the challenge that you're facing now. We know that's true, exactly right. But we see Paul saying that, giving, giving credence to that, this statement, that the word of his grace is able to build you up. Think about that. You know, I, I'm, I'm an advocate of, of reading the Bible over and over and over and over again. But not just for the sake of saying, yes, I read the Bible this many times in my life, 
the next time that you sit down to, to just start in Genesis and go through Revelation, let me give you an encouragement to do this. Have a specific focus on a specific topic as you're reading. Again, it's good to read the Word of God. God said in Isaiah 55, His Word would never return empty. So it's good to read the Word of God with uh, open hearts. But maybe you want to learn about how can this Word build me up? How can this strengthen me? And I'm going to start in Genesis 1, and I'm going to start reading. I'm going to look for things that specifically build me up, encourage me, make me stronger. Another time you might say, no, I'm going to start in Genesis. I'm going to find everything I can find about being a good husband, a good father, or a good wife, a good mother, a good sister, a good brother. There are several approaches you can take to reading the Bible. And you know what? Every time you read, the word hasn't changed. It's still there. But I guarantee you that even if you've been reading the Bible for 50 or 60 years, you're going to come across a passage and say, you know, I never thought about that before. I've never really noticed that verse before. It's been in there all the time. So let me encourage you to do that, to look at the Word of God as something that is going to build you up and prepare you. But also it says the Word of His grace is able. There's an important phrase there, term there, the word able. It's able to do it if you allow it. He's able to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. I love to read 1 Peter chapter 1. I think I've got that reference up there. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. Peter said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fades not away reserved in heaven for you. We think of inheritances on this side of eternity. And they can be anything from, from land to money to uh, whatever physical thing someone has to impart in their will. But I, I, don't you love to think about an eternal inheritance, that there's inheritance, inheritance waiting for us? But we must do as Paul did and pursue the truth Verses 33 and 34, Paul said, I've, co I've coveted no man's uh, silver or gold or apparel. You might think, well, that's kind of strange. Why would anybody covet somebody else's clothes? But uh, they were considered part of, of a person's valuables in that day. Uh, James talks about that in James chapter 5, about those who, uh, who uh, were hoarding things for themselves instead of sharing with those who had need. He said, your, uh, your gold is cankered. Your clothing is, is moth-eaten. So in other words, don't put your faith in those things of the world. But here, Paul is, at least I think he is, defending himself. I have not coveted silver or gold or apparel, and you know that I have worked to get what I needed. Okay? One of the things that you see, Paul, and I've got two references up there. Let's look at those real quick. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 7 through 9. 2 Corinthians 11, 7 through 9. First of all, he says this. He says, Have I committed an offense in abasing myself that you might be exalted because I have preached to you the gospel of God freely? I robbed other churches, taking wages of them to do you service. When I was present with you and wanted, I was chargeable to no man. For that which was lacking to me, the brethren which came from Macedonia supplied. And in all things I have kept myself from being burdensome unto you, and so will I keep myself. If you will read... 
uh, starting back in chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians and go all the way to chapter 13 to the end of the book, uh, you're going to find that Paul's detractors, again, they were trying all kinds of things to stop him. One of the things they tried to do to stop him was to, when he would leave a city, go back behind him into that city and start raising up some doubts about Paul. So this idea that Paul was some kind of a charlatan, a, a snake oil peddler, somebody who really wasn't sincere, these were, they were putting these into new Christians' heads. Galatians talks about that as well too. Paul said, who did hinder you that you uh, should go away? I taught you the truth. You were solid in the truth when I was there with you and now I'm hearing these things about you. Who did that? So again, here, I think he's, he's giving some defense. He uh, talks about how he, he worked because he didn't want those folks in Corinth to say, or in Ephesus as well, he didn't want to give them an opportunity to say, well, Paul's just trying to get money from you. Let's see. And then uh, finally, verse 35 is that leadership by example that we talked about earlier. I have showed you all things now that so laboring you ought to support the weak, to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, having said that, having finished that section, there you go. Okay, let's go back to some of the highlights. I don't want to start with that one, although that's first on the list in Acts 19. I'll come to that in just a second. We've got about five minutes left. But I do want to go into chapter 21 because again, we saw in chapter 20 here, that Paul said, I don't know what's out there. I don't know what's ahead of me in Jerusalem other than the Holy Spirit said, everywhere I go, I'm gonna have bonds and afflictions, okay? So you get into chapter 21 and he's progressing toward Jerusalem, gets to Tyre, meets with some of the brothers and sisters who are there in Tyre. Uh, they told him, don't go to Jerusalem. We don't want you to go to Jerusalem. Verse four of chapter 21. Verse 10 says he stayed with uh, Philip and his family for a little while, but then here comes a brother named Agabus. And this is in chapter 21, verse 11. When he was come to us, he took Paul's girdle or belt and bound his hands and feet and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owns this, this belt and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So now he's getting a little bit more detail. He knows there are bonds and afflictions waiting. Now he's getting a little bit more detail about what's gonna happen when he gets to Jerusalem. But look at this response. When we heard these things, both we, and that's Luke talking now, he's writing this and he's in the company of them. He's saying, I was part of this group. We begged him not to go to Jerusalem. And we already touched on that in chapter 20. But in verse 13, Paul says, what mean you to weep and to break my heart? I'm ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 14 says, when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying the will of the Lord be done. That's an impressive statement. He did not want anybody to get in the way of his teaching the gospel, including his beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. Is it possible for faithful Christians to get in the way of other faithful Christians? In this case, yes. But Paul had a higher commitment to them, and that was a commitment to God. Okay, so, how'd that get up there? 
Let's just run back to this one real quick. In uh, chapter 19, verses 1 through 7, the 12 men who were immersed. These individuals, and this, this follows very closely to what we read about, uh, or what the scriptures teach about Apollos in chapter 18, verses 24 through 28. Apollos was a, a mighty man in the truth. He uh, could really, really preach the word. But all he knew at that time was the baptism of John. And so uh, Priscilla, or excuse me, Aquila, along with his wife Priscilla, went and taught him the better way, the right way, the baptism or immersion into Christ. And so he immediately changed his way and began teaching that truth. Now here's Paul in, in Acts chapter 19. Apparently, uh, these were some who were most likely disciples of Apollos, quote unquote. In other words, they had probably been taught by Apollos. And Paul asked them the question, which seems rather a random question, why he would ask them that. We don't have the whole context, so we're not told why he asked them. He asked the question, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believe? And they said, we don't know anything about it. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean they didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit, but perhaps they didn't know about uh, the, uh, what had happened in Acts chapter 2, for instance. But here's my point I want to make. We could spend a lot of time on this, but we don't have time. I want, I want to make this point. These verses indicate clearly that it does matter, excuse the quotation marks, how we are baptized. Now, there's more, there, there is no mode of baptism in the scriptures. In fact, I prefer the word immersion because that's the actual word. We take the word baptism and we anglicize that from the Greek word baptizo. And there's only one, maybe two, that I know of versions of the Bible that have the courage to say immersion. The rest of them kind of back away from things and just say baptize or baptism. I wish they had the courage to say immersion because that's what it means. There are no modes of baptism. There's not a sprinkling mode. There's not a pouring mode. There's not an immersing mode. It is immersion. Now, that being said, from this passage, it indicates that it makes a difference how we're baptized or how we're immersed. Okay? Again, that sounds kind of funny to say immersed, but you know what I'm saying. Using the terminology of the world, how we're baptized. The Bible says in 1 Peter 3 and verse 21 that immersion into Christ is the, is the answer of a pure conscience. It's not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but it's the answer of a pure conscience. Now your conscience is part of you, right? It's an active part of who you are. That means it's a response. Your immersion into Christ, 1 Peter 3 and verse 21, is a response to the gospel. Uh, Colossians chapter two, <clears throat> excuse me, chapter two, verses 11 and 12 indicate the same thing, that there is to be a knowledge of what you're doing and according to God's truth. Okay. So that's all I wanted to say in regard to that. We have more time for that. It'd be good to study that on a, on a private basis. Okay. And that's my time. I see I've got eight o'clock already. Thank you very much for your time this evening. I appreciate your, your patience and your good, good listening. Let's have a prayer together before we dismiss. Father, we are thankful unto you for the time we had to study together this evening. We're thankful, Father, that you bless us with your word. We're thankful for the opportunity to study it together and to, to learn and to be built up in the most holy faith. May we never take for granted what you've given to us in your word, the blessing that you've given to us of prayer, the blessing that we have of our fellowship with our brothers and sisters. 
We pray for your strength. We pray for our determination to continue to follow you. May we live our lives joyfully serving you so that we can see you in eternity. Father, may we give our best to you each day, and we look forward to being with you in heaven. Pray in Jesus.